Thank you. Good evening, everyone. So we are looking at Guy Fawkes, the first terrorist. How topical is that? Um, I should kind of explain where this came from, really. Um, I got an email a few months ago from Pastor Phil who said, would you speak on a Sunday night? And we're doing a series of kind of Christian apologetics about different aspects of the faith. So I sent him an email back, said, well, yes, but I'm not very good at that stuff. I said, that, you know, I have a simple faith. Um, I know what I know. I understand what I understand. And what I don't understand, I'm not really bothered about. I'll wait till I get to heaven for the full explanation. So I'm not very uh, good at that kind of apologetic stuff. Um, he said, well, it'd still be good for you to do it. Um, and, uh, and then said, do November the 5th. So I, you know, like, emails don't capture humour, do they? Because um, I sent him one back and said, oh, I'm surprised on November the 5th, you haven't asked me to speak about Guy Fawkes, the first terrorist. And as I'm writing it, I'm thinking, I've got a smile on my face. I think that's quite a witty email. And then I get an email back from Pastor Phil, and it's like, that is such a good idea. Um, <laughs> So I, well, so that's how I ended up, and then I felt obliged to uh, see it through, really. So, um, but in amongst it all, there are a couple of issues that I, I feel quite um, are quite serious issues because, to some extent, as Christians, we do need to understand what our response is to the terrorists that we see in the world and the terrorism. We need to have a Christian response. Um, but equally, what worries me is how quickly Christians justify the behaviour that they um, experience and that they, they live out. And some of that behaviour is quite, in my opinion, is quite shocking. Um, and yet this is often Bible-believing Christians who behave in certain ways. And so I want to kind of offer a warning to be careful because um, we might... If I was to go around and say, you know, let's have a show of hands if we think a violent response to terrorism is appropriate for Christians, I would be amazed if anybody put their hands up. Um, but having said that, historically, we've done quite a bit of it. Um, so we have to be really careful. So I'm going to talk a bit about those kind of things. However, let's just have a quick look at Daniel chapter 6. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses, just 10 and 11. So Daniel chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. It says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So we're going to go back to that because this kind of message is subtitled, What do you do when you don't agree with leadership? What do you do when you don't agree with leadership? Well, I'm going to do a bit of a history lesson first of all. So I'm going to talk to you a bit about Guy Fawkes. You're all probably advantaged because I know there's been a program on TV about Guy Fawkes, but I've been in Nepal, so I've not seen it. So you're, I'm going to tell you a bit about Guy Fawkes, but you're all going to be experts anyway. Um, anyway, Guy Fawkes was born on the 13th of April, 1570 in York. So that's a proud moment for us all, isn't it? That Guy Fawkes is a Yorkshireman. Born and bred in York, went to St. Peter's School. Um, one of our best. Um, and 
in the books, it tells us that he, he died from hanging. Um, after he was arrested, he was hung. But actual fact, he didn't die from hanging because the history books tell us that actually he slipped out of the noose and fell from a height and broke his neck on the floor. Um, so he didn't actually die from hanging, which is just as well because if you were hung, they did horrible things to your body afterwards. But because it was kind of classed as an act of God that you weren't hung, he only got chopped into quarters and sent to the four corners of the earth. So, you know, it, 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 there was an advantage for him anyway. But he died on the 31st of January. Um, now, Guy Fawkes, as a young man, was converted to Catholicism. Um, and at that particular time, the monarchy changed quite regularly. And sometimes there was a Protestant king on the throne or queen and sometimes there were catholic kings or queens on the throne but whoever was on the throne treated the other group of people quite badly so the catholics treated the protestants incredibly badly and then when it turned around and we got a protestant king or queen um, they treated the catholics badly um, and at this particular time there was a protestant king on the throne and the result was that the catholics were getting a hard time and so guy fawkes who had converted to being a Catholic quite early on in his age and then had been to Spain where he'd learned to be a soldier and was a very gifted um, soldier and fought for the Catholic army in Spain. He came back to England and when they saw the treatment of the Catholics, a group of them, about 13 of them, got together and the idea was that they would king, kill the king, James I. Um, and so under their sort of leadership, they came up with this plan. There were some cellars under Parliament and they got 36 barrels of gunpowder, kind of secreted them into this um, cellar with a view to when the, when the king next sat on the throne in Parliament, they were going to blow um, the king up. I mean, kind of research tells us that it's unlikely to be unsuccessful because the gunpowder that they got was really old and didn't work. But they didn't know that. They thought they got 36 barrels of, of gunpowder. Um, and as they were approaching the day when the king was going to come to Parliament, some of those 13, they got a bit anxious because it suddenly struck them that, that in amongst Parliament were going to be some of their Catholic friends and brothers. And so they were a bit worried because they were thinking, well, if we brought Parliament, we're actually going to kill some of our own here. So what they did is they sent off secret letters to some of their friends and said, just to give you a bit of a tip-off, don't go to Parliament in the near future. Um, and some of those Catholic you know, lords realised what was going to happen and passed it on to the king. And the king had Parliament searched. Um, and not only did they find the gunpowder, but they had to bless him. Out of the 13, Guy Fawkes was the one that was on watch. He was looking after the gunpowder, ready to, to set it up, and he was arrested. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, was was tortured. Um, and eventually, they found out the name of the conspirators, and they were all hung, as say, including um, Guy Fawkes. <coughs> the king, obviously, was so pleased about his deliverance, he kind of instructed everybody to build bonfires and to celebrate his deliverance uh, and it is amazing isn't it you know back in the 16th century to think that 400 years on as we stood you know i can see the the sort of bonfire over in the corner there and we're still celebrating that after all these um after all these years 
Um, and we're sub celebrating the uh, deliverance of the king. Um, but what we now realise, of course, about Guy Fawkes is that effectively he was a terrorist. You know, he was somebody who wanted to um, challenge the authority and the law of the country by undermining it um, and killing people. Um, and we see that regularly now, don't we, tragically. We see this, um, you know, virtually every day in the news. And, and the scary developments now where um, in the old days um, you would have to learn how to make a bomb in order to be destructive. And what we're seeing now is that people are simply hiring cars and vans and lorries and being incredibly destructive. Um, and we have to kind of ask what is our response going to be to that? You know, what do we as Christians um, do? You know, what would our response be? Um, you know, would we at some point take up arms and say, enough's enough, we're not going to do that? Well, what is interesting is when these events occur, I always feel for that one Muslim leader that's hauled onto the TV that has to kind of explain what has gone on. Um, and the explanation is always the same, isn't it? It's like, this is not Islam. This is not Islam, is what we get. Um, because Islam is, by definition, a peaceful religion, and these people don't understand um, that their behaviour is inexcusable, it's inexplicable, and it's un-Muslim. Um, and... And I kind of wonder to myself, is at, at some point, are we going to have to reel on some Christian leaders who are going to have to explain why Christians have responded in a violent way? And is that possible? Well, historically it's possible. We've got some shameful things in our, in our history as Christians. You know, you look at the, the Crusades that went from England and Europe into Jerusalem to capture Jerusalem back from the Muslim in the 10th and 11th century. You look at the Spanish Inquisition in, in uh, South America in the 14th and 15th century. Um, and and the, you know, that forcing by the Spanish and the Portuguese as they advanced through South America and said, you know, whenever we take a land, all these people will become Catholics. Um, and if they don't, we'll just kill them. You know, that kind of violent response and that, that, to us, which is completely and utterly nonsensical, that idea that somebody should be forced into our faith is, is something that I just personally can't get my head around. It's almost like a forced marriage. It's almost like saying, um, you know, you will give your life to Jesus, otherwise you won't have a life. Um, but we have some shameful things. Now, you might say, well, Jez, yeah, but fair enough. You, the examples that you've given um, are a bit old. You know, we're talking 10th century. We're talking um, 15th century. Well, I came across something recently. When I was in Nepal with Sam, um, I was speaking at um, a conference um, and it's interesting what's happening over Nepal. If you've read Sam's blog, you know, things are changing quite seriously in Nepal. 
Um, and uh, you do need to pray for Sam because the whole law now is very anti-Christian uh, evangelism and um, the result of not just evangelising in Nepal is a five-year prison sentence. But actually, if you look at the law, it not only says that you're not allowed to evangelise, but if you unsettle somebody in their faith you can be imprisoned. Well, imagine Sam sat next to somebody on the bus and somebody saying, oh, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor, I teach in a Bible college. Um, oh, well, what do you think about this? And Sam just expresses a view. And then that person goes off the bus and goes to the priest and says, I feel a bit unsettled in my faith. Um, you know, it's quite a scary thing. But as I was there, we, we arrived on the late on the Friday night, so we hadn't slept at all, you know, for 24 hours, and then Sam said to me, oh, Dad, just to let you know, we're doing the baptism at six o'clock in the morning, so I'll pick you up at half past five. Oh, thank you. Um, so we did this baptism, but what was interesting was that everybody has to sign a sheet of paper to say that they are being baptised under their own free will, and that they're not being imposed on it. And then after the baptisms, uh, we were doing this whole day uh, conference. Uh, Luke, my oldest son, and I taught, and we talked through the book of Jonah. Um, and Jonah's quite an appropriate book for Nepal because, believe it or not, quite a lot of the Christians in Nepal are very uncomfortable about the gospel being preached to everybody. Um, in Nepal, there's still a very strong caste system. So you've got four castes with a Brahmin at the top, and then under the caste system, there is a group called the Dalits. They, they're called the untouchables. So they don't even deserve a caste. They're, they're below that. And some Christians are very uncomfortable about preaching the gospel to the Dalits because um, it will kind of upset the whole social structure. You know, who wants to sit in church when you're a Brahmin and sit next to somebody who's a Dalit? I mean, that's just shocking. Um, so I didn't really know any of that stuff, fortunately, because I just kind of blundered into it. I thought, oh, I'll teach Jonah, because Jonah, as a, as a prophet, was essentially a racist in his early youth, if you think about it. When Jonah went, refused to go to Nineveh, it wasn't because he was scared. They were evil people, but he wasn't scared. It tells us in Jonah chapter 4 that the reason that he didn't want to preach the gospel because he was worried that the people would repent and God would be compassionate to them. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, they're not nice people, and I don't want them to repent and to, to stop their sinful ways. I would, to be quite frank, I can't say this in, in public, would say, Jonah would say, but to be quite frank, the sooner they're destroyed, the better. Um, and so we, I was speaking, um, unknowing the whole kind of caste system, uh, fortunately. I was speaking about this, but when I was thinking about it before I went, I turned to one of my favourite preachers, which is John Piper. Um, and it's interesting because Luke Dale mentioned John Piper this morning. Pastor Phil mentioned John Piper last week. So he's obviously a favourite of us all. So I thought, I'll see what John Piper said about, about Jonah because he's always right. Um, and I'm going to quote you a section from what he said. So he's speaking on... Now, the reason I'm doing this is because... The examples that I gave of, of inappropriate Christian behaviour were the 10th century and the 15th century. And you're saying to me, but Jez, it's all different now. We're all different. Well, this is John Piper's, admittedly, it's 1981, so it's still 25 years away, so it's not the most recent thing. He says, I can remember one Wednesday night 
when I was a little boy in Greenville, South Carolina. My mother came home after a church business meeting with anger and grief on her face. Daddy was out of town, and mother had been the only person at the meeting to stand up and oppose a motion that no black people be allowed to attend our church. It passed easily anyway. A few years later, when my sister was getting married in our church, we invited a black family who were long-time friends. When they came in the front door of the church, someone instructed them that they should sit in the balcony. But my mother insisted they sit with the other guests on the main floor. Sometime later, there was a party at our house for young church couples. And I recall how one of the men bragged about his membership in the Ku Klux Klan and belittled the black race. That was a large city, middle-class Baptist church, shot through with racism. By racism, I mean a disrespectful, belittling, and sometimes violent attitude towards people of another race. It is a phenomenon utterly contrary to the spirit of Jesus Christ our Lord, who said, Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. He extolled the Samaritan who stopped to help a needy Jew. He commended the poor in spirit and justified a man who cried out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted to him who judges justly. I shudder to think how many churchgoers in the Bible Belt are going to hear Jesus say at the judgment day, I never knew you, depart from me, you evildoers. Today in the woods of northern Alabama, covered with kudzu vine, Ku Klux Klan military camps secretly train and equip their members for the race war they anticipate. The Invisible Empire, Knights of the KKK, threaten and abuse blacks and Jews throughout the South. And this is just one ugly manifestation of the resurgent racism and hypernationalism in our country. People who have attended our services have sent me unsigned material about the supremacy of the white race because we are supposedly the ten lost tribes of Israel. And he goes on, 1981, and he's preaching that in church. Um, And he's saying, we cannot have this attitude. If you read Philip Yancey's book, Soul Survivor, How I Survived the Church, he has exactly the same experience. He tells some telling tales about growing up in Georgia, not far actually from where Sam's wife Hannah grew up, um, of the majority of men in the Baptist church were members of Ku Klux Klan, the majority of them. And the majority of the pastors were senior members. And he tells stories of how he has a card, does Philip Yancey, where the elders... And the deacons would stand at the door and every black person that came, they would refuse entry and give them a card to explain why they couldn't attend church. He grew up with a pastor who explained how, from the Bible, how white people were superior 
to black people. And that's the way that God made it. And he said, as a young man, you trust your pastors and your preachers. And that's what he genuinely believed, that as a white person, he was better than black people. He says that he went to a, a Ku Klux Klan rally and saw a group of 10, 20 black men who'd come to be a protest amongst 20,000 people, beaten mercilessly. And he remembered as a young man, thinking that that was appropriate behaviour. You know, and people justify it. Christians, Bible-believing Christians, justify their behaviour. And I'm kind of warning us to be careful because ultimately sin is such that it will find you a way of justifying why you are doing what you are doing and why it is not wrong. And so we as, as Christians have to hold really carefully to our position, to what Jesus taught us and to remember what our response should be. Because we can justify anything. Now essentially, our response to things like terrorism and anything is always the same and it's a twofold response. Jesus has told us to do two things. First of all, he has told us to speak unequivocally the truth. That's what Jesus has told us to do. Now that's easier said than done because the church today doesn't really know what the truth is. You know, the church today has kind of looked and thought, well, we can't preach these things because they're going to be very unpopular. So let's find a way of, of renegotiating those things so we're not really saying what we're saying. You know, when I was head teacher at um, One in a Million before I retired, um, the deputy head was a really close friend of mine and he was a Muslim colleague. And we would talk quite frankly away from school about our faith, he would tell me about his faith as a Muslim, I would tell him about my faith as a Christian, and we kind of do it away from school so that there was nothing inappropriate. But I would say to him, unequivocally, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. There is no other way and I would say to him I admire your lifestyle he was a very kind person and would give up time on an evening to do acts of kindness to do soup kitchens a really lovely lovely person but unequivocally Jesus said I did not come to die on a cross to be an alternative route for anybody who actually likes that Christian route you know we are not all climbing a mountain and all finding different routes to that place. Christians, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims. And Jesus did not come and die on a cross to be an alternative route. So if you fancy Hinduism, if you fancy Judaism, if you fancy Islam... That is your route and it's okay. It's not okay. Jesus said there is one path, one route and I'm it. And if you won't come to the Father by me, you won't come to the Father at all. Now that's the unequivocal truth of the gospel. 
It might not be popular, and I'm conscious I'm speaking that in an area that would find that very uncomfortable. But what can you do? It's the truth. It's what it is. And we are required to speak the truth as Christians. But when you've spoken the truth, you are also required to love. That's what you are required to do. You speak the truth, you say it as it is, and then you love. And love, we talked about this the other week, Love is seeking the best for other people. That's what love is. You are called to seek people's best. And a couple, when I was preaching church, I was asking people, you know, envisage the person that you dislike the most in your mind. And I'd say, if it is the person that you sat next to them, don't let them know that you're thinking about them. But think about the person that you dislike the most You are required to love that person. Jesus didn't say you'll ever have to like them because likes to do with feelings and emotions. But loving is to do with actions. And you can lovingly serve another person, even a person who you don't like, even a person who you might consider to be your enemy. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies. Is that an unreasonable request? No, it really isn't. All it means is that you seek the best. If Jesus had said, like your enemies, that would have been hard to do. But when Jesus is saying, love your enemies, when he gives that example of the Samaritan, the man who finds somebody that he hates, but he's in such a difficult place, he helps him, He puts him on his donkey, he takes him to a hospital, he pays for his hospital fees so he can recover. That's a loving act. And when that person is fully recovered, and maybe that Jew does go to the Samaritan and say, thank you, maybe the Samaritan says, "Um, I still don't like you, but I'm loving you. And Jesus has called us to love, and the real challenge for the church is that twofold mission. We have to speak the truth. You can't deviate from it. But then when you've spoken the truth, you have got to find ways um, to love people. And, you know, when I last spoke about this, I told you that um, Sam is my sort of kind of resident church historian. He's got a fantastic knowledge of church history so I said to him I'm thinking about a church who spoke the truth and were loving can you give me an example from history of a church that really got that balance right and he thought long and hard and said I can't think of one in 2000 years of church history maybe you would if you do come and give me the example but where was that church that declared the truth but loved the people within the community of which it was part of Churches either declare the truth and people hate them because nobody likes what they're saying or they're incredibly loving but hide the truth because they know people won't like it. The challenge is to do both and that's what Jesus has called us to do. Now, when it comes to leadership and to things, clearly Guy Fawkes didn't like the king. He didn't like the, the, the Protestant leadership And his action was, we'll just kill them. 
But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that if we are uncomfortable about leadership, and we'll talk about national leadership in the first instance, there are things that we can do as Christians. But the first thing that you do is you do what Daniel did, which is what we've just read in Daniel chapter 6, is you pray. Because, And what you pray, first of all, is you pray that your attitude is right. Because in the light of the stories that I've just given you from Philip Yancey, and from John Piper, it is scary how we can genuinely believe that our behaviour is totally and utterly right. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're talking to somebody and you think to yourself, you have got this completely wrong. And they are absolutely convinced that what they are doing is not only right, but born out of a pure heart. Have you ever had that kind of experience where somebody's talking to you and you're sort of thinking, wow, you genuinely believe that? And they'll be being really difficult and really awkward. And they'll be saying, and I'm only doing it because I love you. And you think, honestly, Really? We can justify, the Bible says, doesn't it, that our hearts are incredibly deceitful. So when you are wanting to challenge anything, the first thing that you do is you do what Daniel did. You go and pray. And you pray and you say, God, check my heart. You know, have a look at me and make sure that there's nothing wrong. And then... If you are really, genuinely of the view that it is right, I would generally recommend that you go and talk to some other people, get another person's perspective, preferably not the people that are part of your gang, because uh, they are quite likely to agree with your perspective. Go and check it out. And if somebody is saying, I think that your heart is pure, then you can move forward. And, and one of the things I always felt years ago when I was an elder, I always thought it would be interesting if as part of our eldership group, we had an independent observer of how we conducted ourselves, how we spoke, how we behaved as elders, particularly in elders' meetings. Because... It's quite scary when you are making decisions and your heart's not right before God. And it would be quite, I thought it would be quite helpful to have an independent person who afterwards might come up to you and say, Jez, you thought you were absolutely bang on when you said that. But can I just tell you how I discerned your spirit? Um, and, and I might withdraw what I said. But we have to check our hearts, check it out with other people. Now in Daniel chapter 3 verse 16, it tells us that having prayed, and they go and they make a thing of it. And this is one of those rare occasions where the advice about praying secretly goes out the window. Because Daniel doesn't do that, he opens the windows. So he can be seen to be praying. That's normally bad advice. But not on this occasion 
because he's making a point. And then in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not... We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So they've prayed and they've gone back to the king and they've said to the king, we just can't do that because what you're asking us to do is you're asking us to worship you and we can't do that. And ultimately, you know, we have to be willing to challenge But we also have to be willing to put our lives on the line, you know, and to say, you know, I would rather lose my life and be in heaven than live my life falsely as a lie on this earth. You know, I'd rather be with God in heaven. So they they challenge it. And we do need to be willing to, to challenge Now, and there are organisations, and I think next week, next Saturday, we'll hear of some of those organisations that do challenge government. And we have to be prepared to do that. And there may come a time in our lifetime or in the time ahead, just like in Nepal. You know, when Sam went to Nepal, it was declared to be a secular country, which meant we don't condone any religion. We accept all religions. And in a short period of time... You know, Sam's now in a country where his faith is not accepted and where to share his faith may put him at risk, you know. Um, and we kind of pray for that. Um, pray for Sam. Pray for... Um, because Sam does have that provocative side in his nature. I don't know where that came from. But um, but there is something in him. Um so we just need to, to pray. But equally, what do we do when we are unhappy with our own leadership? You know, it's not just about the government. What about church leadership? You know, I, I was always fortunate most of my Christian life to be part of an eldership of the church. So I always felt that I, I had a voice and I could always say what I, what I felt. But I used to think about what about those people that aren't on the eldership? How do they sit in the congregation every day and think, I am happy with that? Well, if I wasn't happy, I only had to wait a month and I could go to the elders' meeting and express my views. But there were only a few of us that could do that and everybody else had to find another vehicle. Um, and it's such a joy since, you know, I've not been part of knowledge. It was such a joy to come here and not to be part of any of that stuff. In fact, I saw somebody a few weeks ago wagging the finger at an elder. Um, and I, I, I kind of giggled a bit, to be honest. No, not for the elder, because it wasn't nice. But I'm giggling, thinking, thank you, God, that that is not my experience anymore. Um, but what do you do? What do you do when there's, you know, decisions are being made? Well, you do exactly what I've just said, the first thing you do is you pray. You pray for yourself and you pray for your own heart. What does it say in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24? It says, Search me, God, 
and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the first thing, if you're not happy about decision making within the church, what you do is you pray and you make sure that your heart is right. You make sure that your motives, what you are thinking, what you are doing is right before God. And you don't move until you get God's thumbs up that says your heart is right before me right now. You don't move away from that place. That's the first thing that you do. And then what you do is you go and talk to the leadership. Now that's a bit obvious, but it, it's something that people don't do. You know, as I, when I was head teacher, one of the things I would always say to my staff is I used to hate it. I used to hate it when I used to get emails that were written to other people, but I was copied in because I was the boss. And it might be a little conversation between, you know, two people. Like, why have you copied me in? I don't want to know that. Talk to each other. Or sometimes people will come and say, I'm a bit unhappy because this member of staff has spoken to me, I think, um, inappropriately. And so I would say, oh, what did they say when you, when you talked to them? Well, I haven't spoken to them. Oh, well, why is that then? Well, I'm speaking to you. Oh, well, can I advise you to go and talk to that person then? You're a grown-up person. Go and talk to another grown-up person. Have a grown-up conversation. And just say, I didn't like the way you speak to them. Well, they won't listen. Well, you don't know. Because you haven't spoken to them. Well, I know. Well, just give them a break and give them a chance. Well, it's pointless. So then they come back and see me a week later. Did what you said. Pointless, as I said. Oh, why is that? Well, I, I said what I said and they didn't listen. Oh, well, go and have another conversation. Oh, I've had one. Well, go and have another one then. Keep at it until you get it resolved. But don't draw me in because I'm just the boss. Talk to each other. And if we're, not, if we're not happy with things, we need to be grown up about it. Just have a conversation and then go and talk. And the real challenge for, for leadership is that they listen. You know, that's the real challenge. It's not just that they just dismiss it, but hopefully they've got the good grace to listen carefully. And once you have said your bit and you know that you have been heard, that's your bit said. You then move on. You've said your bit, move on. You know, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. It's simple, isn't it, when it comes to church leadership? Have confidence in them and submit to them. That's what our responsibility is. So you've prayed about it. You've said your bit. And so long as you've got confidence in them, you submit it and you walk away. Job done. Now, they might listen and act on what you say, and they might not. But it's not the outcome that is the issue. 
The outcome is that you've been heard, you've said your bit. If they are godly men who then go back to their God and pray and say, I've just had this, what do you think? You've got to have confidence because ultimately you have to submit. That's what our responsibility is. And I speak as somebody, you know, I'm not an elder here. I am part of this church and I'm in submission to the leadership of this church as is everybody else here. That's what we do. You know, we submit to leadership. And the key thing is you have to have confidence. Now, this is a really uncomfortable thing that I'm going to say. But my question always to people is, if you've no confidence in the leadership, why are you in that church? Because that, to me, seems to be the criteria. I used to experience this as a, as a head teacher, or more so when I was deputy head at Hanson. Um, I had this kind of reputation of being good with difficult parents, which was not a reputation I liked, because every time there's difficult parents, oh, where's Jez? Let's go and get Jez. So I'd have this fuming, angry parent marching through the door. Mr. Stockhill, please, come on, have a sit down. And they would proceed to tell me why this school was rubbish. A whole list of things. Now, I didn't mind the one thing, because if it's one thing, I can investigate that, and I can get back to them, and I can say, look, I'm not sure that you got the right end of the stick there. But this endless list. And you'd always, your heart would sink when either they've got a flip chart or a file of facts or something in their hand, and you just think, oh, no. But I would listen to all the complaints, and it would all come down to this School is rubbish. And then they would get the Ofsted report. That was always the best thing. Leave that in your bag till later. Pull it out. And what does this Ofsted report say? Exactly what I've said, that you're rubbish. So, you know, after about 45 minutes, I've not said a word and I've listened carefully. And I said, I would always say, so which school are you going to take your daughter to now? And they would say, what do you mean which school am I going to take my daughter to? I'd say, well, you clearly have no confidence in our leadership and in us as a school. And if I was in your position, I couldn't possibly entrust the education of my children to such a poor establishment. <laughs> and they would go, well, I'm not moving. I said, oh, I, I just assumed that you would do because we are so bad and we can't possibly change all those things overnight. Um, but I genuinely think that if the school was that bad, I wouldn't let my children stay in such a school. I really wouldn't. And when it comes to church, it's not dissimilar. You know, we have to have confidence in our, in our leadership. And confidence comes to that crux when you have to submit. And it's okay to submit and say, I don't agree with that decision right now. But to be honest, I'm confident in this leadership and I will submit to that decision. And that's all that is left for us. Because the alternative is, if you've no confidence, it is too serious to leave your soul in the hands of people you do not trust. It's too serious an issue. These people have got responsibility over your soul and they must give an account. 
don't entrust your soul into the hands of people you don't trust. You know, when I was a head teacher, my big thing was safeguarding. I was involved in the Bradford Safeguarding Children Board, and I was really big on safeguarding. And the chair of the, the committee told this story about in his, where he lived, um, there was an announcement that there's going to be a new football team set up for juniors. Um, and anybody who wanted to go and play could sign up and play in this new football team. And the chair of the Bradford Safeguarding Children's Committee had a friend who was a police officer, so he sent his son to this football team. He couldn't go because he was on duty. But as he was, he was on duty, and he thought, I'm around that area, I'll just go and see how it's going. And so he went down to this football pitch and saw this training session where his son was, and he looked at the person that was leading the training, and he realised that he was um, a paedophile who had been prosecuted for his um, abuse of children, who had been to jail, come out and decided that he would set up a football team. And no appropriate checks had been done. And this, this police officer was just horrified. So he took his child away and told all the parents, I'm telling you now, stop it. And the, the chair of the Bradford Safeguarding Children's Board said, if you had a Lamborghini, would you give the keys to a stranger? And everybody would say, no. He'd say, well, why are you giving your children into the hands of people you do not know and you cannot trust? Take care. And when it comes to your soul and you are committing your soul to leadership, have confidence in it. Have confidence in them. And your confidence will be tested at that moment when you are required to submit to them. Up to that point, it's never an issue. But submit. And ultimately, if you have no confidence in leadership, my question would be, why would you stay in such a place? And the only answer can possibly be that God tells you to stay. But there is no other reason other than that. So when it comes to leadership... We do, you know, not all leaders, not governments, not church leaders, not everybody gets it right. But we pray that our heart is right. We do a godly, loving, gracious, kind challenge. But when we've said our bit at that point, assuming that we've got confidence in the leadership, we say our bit, we trust it to God, and then we move on, you know. And that's, I think, how God calls us to understand our, our leadership. And, you know, and do pray because our elders, our pastor, our leadership of this church, when they stand before God, they will give an, a different account to how we will give an account. They will give, we will give an account of how we live their, our lives they will give an account for not only how they lived their lives, but how they led the church. Um, and if you've got any grace and any compassion about you, you need to pray that they can stand before the judgment seat with pure hearts, knowing that as far as they can before God, they have conducted their leadership in a godly and Christ-like way. So that's why we pray for our leadership, because they'll give an account before God in a way that we don't. 
So I'm going to finish in prayer. Um, Kay and I met this week, but we struggled to think of any fireworks songs that we could sing to be to be topical. Um, so we just decided that we'd finish the the service um, with a with a prayer. Father God, we want to pray for the world in which we find ourselves. We want to pray for the things that are happening in the world that are causing great distress. And Father God, I pray that in these troubled times, in the darkness, there is such a need for the church to rise up and to be a beacon and to be like a lighthouse and to shine out its light. Now is not a time for the church to hide and to be afraid and to be scared. It's a time for us to stand up, to speak the truth and to love people. Father God, I pray that you'd help us, that when we see things that we know to be wrong, that you'd give us the grace and the strength to challenge it. And Father God, we pray for the leadership here at Sunbridge Road Mission. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, anoint them, that you would give them vision, that you would give them um, an understanding of the future that you have for this church. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd give them uh, grace that they would be willing to listen. But Father God, I pray that you'd give them strength to act on what you've called them to do. So we pray for them because we know that they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for their leadership. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be gracious to them. So for us, Father, I pray that you'd give us the courage that when we find ourselves this week in places where things are not right, where people are, are doing things that are incorrect. I pray that you'd give us the courage, the grace, the humility, the compassion to challenge it. But Father God, I pray that you'd give us that opportunity to challenge it in the way that, that Jesus did. And we know that Jesus never shirked the truth. He never said anything just to make people feel good or to make people feel better. He simply spoke the truth in love. And I pray that that may be our, the way that we conduct ourselves. So, Father God, have your hand upon us. I pray that you bless us this week. Um, and that when we come back together next week, we'll have stories of God doing great things through us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I don't know if we're doing tea or not.